Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by Paul Staub to discuss his book, Intellectual Populism, Democracy, Inquiry, and the People. Thanks for tuning in. In response to denunciations of populism as undemocratic and anti-intellectual, Intellectual populism argues that, in fact, populism has contributed to a distinct and democratic intellectual tradition in which ordinary people assume leading roles in the pursuit of knowledge. Focusing on the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era, the book uses case studies of intellectual figures to trace key rhetorical appeals that proved capable of resisting the status quo and building alternative communities of inquiry. As the book shows, figures like Robert Ingersoll, Mary Baker Eddy, Booker T. Washington, and Zikala Sah deployed populist rhetoric to rally ordinary people as thinkers in new intellectual efforts. In sum, intellectual populism demonstrates how orators and advocates can channel the frustrations and energies of the American people toward productive, democratic intellectual ends. I'm excited to be joined today by the book's author, Paul Staub, who is Associate Professor and Chair of Communication Studies at Vanderbilt University. Staub's research explores the intersection of rhetoric, intellectual culture, and public advocacy in the Gilded Age and the Progressive Era United States. In addition to intellectual populism, he is the author of William James and the Art of Popular Statement and co-editor of Thinking Together, Lecturing, Learning, and Difference in the Long 19th Century. Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, we're happy to have you. I think we should get right into the heart of it uh, and start by exploring the notion of populism that you describe in the book, uh, particularly an assertion from early on in the introduction uh, where you say that the concept is one that needs to be rescued from some persistent misconceptions. What is populism as you see it, and why does it have such a bad reputation? Historians and scholars often will make a distinction between two kinds of populism. There is the large P populism and the small P populism. Uh, The large P populism refers to a social and political movement located in basically the 1890s in the United States and defined by what was known as the People's Party uh, and the efforts to get the People's Party's politicians elected to state legislatures to change uh, federal laws, uh, to institute new um, legal restrictions uh, that really tried to rein in a lot of what was happening in terms of finance and industry right around the turn of the 20th century. But then there's small P populism. And small P populism is where people looked at a lot of what was happening with the People's Party of the 1890s and recognized that that kind of populism actually happened in a lot of other eras uh, throughout the United States history and throughout world history. So you could take a look at the kinds of arguments populists were making, uh, the People's Party populists, and you could take a look at a lot of the efforts they were doing with legislation, uh, the complaints they had about institutions uh, and about the status quo, and you could trace those and, and see similar kinds of appeals in different groups and different struggles throughout American history and throughout world history. Um, In the 20th century, people have looked at such figures as Huey Long, uh, as a sort of quintessential populist. Uh, George Wallace was a populist. Ross Perot, many people consider a populist. And now uh, people often look at somebody like Donald Trump uh, as a kind of populist. And if you sort of peg populism, the small p populism, to these political figures, I think you can easily get a sort of negative view of it. You would look at somebody who is 
pretty authoritarian or uh, a demagogue in some ways. People have called Huey Long a demagogue. People have called Donald Trump a demagogue. Um, you look at somebody who is involved in sort of uh, far-right reactionary politics, just interested in sort of propping up their own political power and in sort of rallying the ignorant masses, so to speak, to support their own personal political agenda. And if that's what you understand populism to be, uh, then I think we're misunderstanding the term and the term becomes something we need to rescue. Because there have been just as many sort of democratic leftist populist movements in the United States and around the world as there have been right-wing sort of movements. So I think it doesn't help us to think about populism in terms of sort of far-right reactionary politics. Instead, we have to understand, and I think really take seriously the idea that there is this energy among people who feel excluded by institutions, whatever those institutions are, whether they're political or social or economic um, or intellectual, as I argue in this book, and we have to understand how to really take seriously those frustrations and learn to work with them, learn to sort of push them in more productive, uh, democratic kinds of directions um, so that we can have a better understanding of the way uh, these sort of populist frustrations could actually contribute to American society and culture. Could you say a little more about the origin of thinking about populism in the way that you do in the People's Party? What were some of their like specific complaints or um, indeed their agenda? Absolutely. So the People's Party really grew up in a lot of ways in uh, the West, as it was known then in the United States, which at the time really meant what we would call today the Great Plains. And these were a lot of farmers and industrial laborers who felt uh, very much excluded and marginalized by sort of the political and economic structures of the United States at the time. So they would often point to the Eastern financiers as the people who sort of kept them in perpetual debt. If you were a farmer and you had to, you know, take out money and, and mortgage your property and take out loans to buy new equipment, you could never escape the sort of cycle of debt um, while you were enriching these financiers in the East. So they wanted to have a party that represented the common people as they saw it, right? The common laborers, people who worked in farms, people who worked in factories, people who worked in uh, industrial production lines. Um, and they wanted a political establishment that was not in bed with the, with the Eastern financiers, but would really represent the voices of the people. Um, this was, I mean, you have to remember the 1890s was an era of incredible gaps between rich and poor, right? In a lot of ways, the Gilded Age back then, the Gilded Age is what we sort of talk about between 1870 and 1900 or so, and then the Progressive Era sort of follows on the heels, and in many ways is a response to the Gilded Age. But right at this time, right, we had these huge gaps between rich and poor. We have, for basically one of the first times, these massive robber baron figures, right, who have incredible wealth and can control so much of society and the economy and politics. And we have rank corruption at sort of all levels of government, from the federal government to state governments to city governments. Um, this is when we have problems with Tammany Hall in New York. We have corruption in the city of Chicago. And the people are looking at this and saying, these people are corrupt and they're getting rich at the time that we basically can't get out of debt. And there is something fundamentally wrong with a system like that. And we need a political party that can take back the power for the people and uh, put people who represent our views into office. And they made some progress at that, right? They managed to get some people into Congress and some notable leaders. 
Absolutely, they did. The People's Party was incredibly successful or, or significantly successful at the local and state level. They were less successful at the national level, although they did push for a number of reforms that, that we sort of take for granted today. For example, the direct election of U.S. senators, uh, where people, regular voters, get to vote for U.S. senators, um, that was an initiative sort of led by the People's Party. It used to be that state legislatures would uh, elect the senators to represent states in the U.S. Senate, but the populists, the People's Party, thought that was uh, wrong, and we needed the people to have a voice and whose representatives would be. You've said a, a little bit about how the inequality of this era in America sort of fueled the need for, this, for the People's Party. Um, you talked a little bit about the political and economic situation. What other characteristics of the what you're calling the Gilded Age and progressive era in America made it such a hotbed for populist rhetoric? There were a number of transformations that were underway. So the economic ones I've sort of talked about here, but we had really uh, rapidly changing demographics in the United States at the time. Um, on the one hand, we have uh, in, incredibly high levels of immigration at this time, and that's changing the way communities look. And we also have communities moving from more rural areas to more urban areas, right? More and more Americans are living in cities. And when you're in cities and you're close to people, you see new expressions of culture. You see new expressions of religious belief. You see new people who have different ideas about what it means you know, to be a good person, what it means to be a politically active sort of person. And for some people that becomes really difficult to understand, right? There is uh, at the same time, we have sort of this populist movement. We also have uh, very reactionary nativist movements where a lot of people are looking at immigrants. They're looking at what's happening in the cities and they're saying, we have to take back America for the Americans, which they, you know, they mean, you know, white Protestant Americans basically. And so there are so many factors happening with the population, with demographics, that a lot of people worry society is spinning out of control. We have industry uh, and new methods of production that are sort of changing the way we think about work and we think about labor. More, more and more people are simply replaceable sort of machines of flesh that we can push into the system um, and into the machinery of production and replace at will, right? Why do we have to worry about those workers? Why do we have to care about those workers? We have many, many more lined up out the door who need jobs and we want to employ them, right? So there's all of these different shifts happening with people and with work that really make people think we're doing it wrong. We've got this wrong. Our laws are not doing enough to protect people. Our institutions are fundamentally corrupt and we need to start over it, or at the very least, drastically overhaul what we have here. And a lot of people are worried that the America they knew, however real or not real that America was, is slipping away very quickly. And so enter into this some of the figures that you deal with in the book. And I wonder if we could develop the thinking about what was you know, important about this moment in the 19th century by pursuing a little bit of discussion of the culture of the time. One of the things that really struck me in the Ingersoll chapter is that in a lot of ways, he's a sort of orator in the classic mode, right? He's going on talking tours, he's giving lectures and, and those other things. But he also stands at the middle of a media empire where he's producing pamphlets and posters and all kinds of cultural ephemera. And everywhere he goes, that is also a cultural event that leads to the publication of newspaper articles and debates in town among clergymen and those kinds of things. What was it about or how did 19th century culture contribute to populism as you see it? Yeah, that's a great question. 
the book that we're talking about here is a book really about intellectual culture. So a lot of what I'm doing in this book is making an analogy. People have talked a lot about political populism and socio-political populism, a lot of the issues and dynamics that we've been talking about today. And what I do in the book is I take a look at those dynamics and I say, I think something similar is happening with the same kind of frustrations and the same kind of turmoil and transformation in the intellectual realm as in the political realm. So what I do is I try to take a look at um, a lot of the, the issues that are happening in politics and in many ways map them onto what's happening in affairs of the mind or the production of knowledge. And so let me give you a little bit of an example of that. Uh, right in, in the second half of the 19th century, basically the time of the Civil War, American higher education came in, came to look like what it looks like today. So this was an era of incredible specialization and incredible professionalization. We have the proliferation of disciplines, right? Um, we have not just biology, but we have uh, microbiology and macrobiology and chemical biology and all these different kinds of chemistry and all these different kinds of physics, right? So all of a sudden, what we think of as knowledge becomes confined in smaller and smaller, narrower sort of bins that are, are much deeper, right? You're a specialist in one particular area of medicine or of physics. You're not that sort of same broad learned gentleman, so to speak, who uh, was just as knowledgeable about biology as he was about poetry and literature and things like that. So we have this, the, the modern research university, uh, the thing that Michigan State is, the thing that Vanderbilt University is, really is born at this time in American history. Um, so there are these big transformations happening in the way we create knowledge, we produce knowledge. And in a lot of ways, they look a lot like the way, the, the kind of transformations that are happening in labor and in, um, in, in the way we produce goods in this country. So um, what I do is I trace figures in this book and the rhetoric of these figures, people who are responding to these kinds of specialization, this push for specialization and professionalism and the narrowing of the academic mind. Um, these are people who push back against that and say, I think we can do it differently. I think what we shouldn't do is let the research university and the academic experts in the research university define uh, what it means to be intelligent and what it means to have an idea or to know the truth. And one of the people you just mentioned is Robert Ingersoll. Robert Ingersoll was a relatively uneducated or better yet a self-educated person. Um, he did a little bit of time in college, not very much. He was uh, basically an apprentice lawyer uh, who grew up around the country, ended up settling in Illinois later. But he was somebody who loved to have conversations about religion. And when Ingersoll had conversations about religion, he had conversations that were meant to sort of make people think twice about their religious beliefs. Ingersoll would describe himself as an agnostic. I think the best way to understand Ingersoll is somebody who liked to push other people's buttons so that they would think for themselves. So he would go after time-tested religious beliefs in the form of these great public lectures. Ingersoll was probably, for about 25 years or so, considered the most eloquent American out there. People like Mark Twain looked at him and said, Ingersoll's, Ingersoll's got it. Ingersoll is much more eloquent than I am. And he's able to put together words and sentences in a way that I can't even do. Um, and, and many others said something similar about Ingersoll. He was really the definition of the silver-tongued orator. And so he, Ingersoll would go on these lecture tours. And he would go to small cities and towns and also great metropolises. 
and he would deliver these lectures that ridiculed Christianity, revealed religion, uh, stories in the Bible, modern theology, and all of these different parts of the religious beliefs that Americans held at the time. And his audiences absolutely loved it. Ingersoll's audiences thought his lectures were absolutely wonderful intellectual exercises. Now, these audiences were not just a whole bunch of atheists in a room together applauding what he was saying. These were people who were absolutely devout. Ministers went to Ingersoll's lectures, right? People, church members all over the place went packed into Ingersoll's lectures because they wanted to hear him play around with sacred stories and with people's religious beliefs and with theology uh, because it was enriching and it was enlivening and people got so much out of having these tough conversations about really important religious matters. And as you mentioned earlier, they would take home keepsakes from these lectures, right? Ingersoll was a master of publicity and marketing and salesmanship, right? He had all of these different artifacts that you could buy, trinkets and souvenirs and texts and books and posters and lithographs from all his different performances. And he really had this kind of cultural empire that was run more or less by his brother-in-law and other family members that sort of helped him with this. But what's so fascinating about Ingersoll to me is the fact that he built this incredible following of both believers and non-believers who simply wanted to have important conversations about these big, deep religious questions, right? These are people who love to get together and to have their beliefs challenged, right? And they did it in these common sort of civic spaces. So at the very same time, that academics were getting together in research universities and having academic scholarly debates using a language that ordinary people couldn't really understand, right? These are very sort of obtuse academic, you know, there's a lot of jargon involved. So you have to have a PhD to be involved in these conversations. Ingersoll was out there, you know, on the lecture circuit in engaging and enlivening popular audiences to have religious conversations because they desperately needed to have these conversations. You're listening to the MSU Press Podcast. I'm here with Paul Staub, author of Intellectual Populism, Democracy, Inquiry, and the People. I, there are so many things about Ingersoll that, that serve as a model for the other case studies that you're talking about. And I think before we get too far down the line of looking at specific orators from the period, we should talk about your theory of populist rhetoric that, that sort of structures the book, the way that you look at five separate appeals that you say unite the different orators who are all interestingly coming from a kind of outsider position like the one that you described. They're members of American Indian tribes or they're black people or they're as you say about Ingersoll, you know, not formally educated, but yet deeply intelligent and eloquent sorts of people. Could you say a little bit about uh, the taxonomy that you develop about populist rhetoric and how these orators are united in their use of rhetoric to make something happen? Absolutely. So again, this is the project is sort of analogical, right? I'm looking at what people have said about the rhetoric of political populism, right? So like the People's Party of the 1890s or somebody like Huey Long uh, in the 1930s. And I'm trying to adapt that for thinking about intellectual culture. And so I say there are basically five appeals centered in, sent in and around the production of knowledge that define the intellectual populist tradition. So the first appeal that I, that I identify has to do with sort of centering uh, your attack on 
the figures and institutions that control knowledge, at least from the populist perspective. So this means looking at um, research universities, right, where uh, you have a bunch of out of, out of touch elite academics who don't speak a language that other people can know. It means looking at religious establishments like Ingersoll did, churches and, and uh, seminaries and theological institutions, right, the Catholic Church, and saying they have accumulated too much power when it comes to religious conversations. It means taking a look at medical establishments, right? And the second chapter in the book is a case study about Mary Baker Eddy, uh, who really went after the medical establishment of the time for claiming they had the sole authority over healing and saying, you, if you want to heal, you need to follow what modern medicine says. You need to take these pills. You need to do these practices. You need to see a physician who is trained in a particular hospital. So the intellectual populace can look at all sort of center their attacks uh, and their criticisms against these established intellectual academic institutions. The second appeal of the intellectual populist tradition has to do with calling together ordinary people as the people. So what you do is you, you, you speak to a bunch of people in a lecture auditorium, for example, and say, you people in the auditorium, you are just as capable of talking about theology and belief and God and religion as any of the specially trained people in seminary or as any of the ministers out there who are in these churches all over the place. You have just as much of a right to inquire about religious affairs as do these specially trained experts. So let's all get together as ordinary people and think about pressing issues in religion or in medicine or in education or in philosophy. Because as regular, ordinary, salt-of-the-earth folks, these questions are just as much a part of our lives as they are of the lives of experts. So those are two, the two big ones. So those are, those are sort of the pillars of the populist rhetorical tradition. And then I add three others that I think are real hallmarks of this intellectual populist tradition. One of the things you do if you are a populist leader is you deploy what are known as Americanisms, right? So all of the sort of key terms of American thought and culture get deployed in this, in this sense, right? You talk about freedom, you talk about liberty, you talk about justice, you talk about equality. And in the intellectual populist tradition, you do so when it comes to the production of knowledge, right? So you are free to inquire about these issues as much as, you know, you are free to do that. You don't have to worry about being restricted by intellectual certification, right? About having the, the letters PhD after your name. You are still able to do that, right? Your opinion is equal to that of somebody who was specially trained because you have just as much stake in this conversation as they do. So these Americanisms become big parts of the populist tradition. Another one that really sort of pervades the intellectual populist tradition has to do with the idea of radical conservatism or conservative radicalism. And that's basically the idea of if we oppose these institutions, these existing knowledge institutions, and let's say we uh, vanquish these institutions, um, that's going to be a radical change, right? Getting rid of the medical establishment or the religious establishment or the philosophical establishment, that will be a big radical change. But it will also be simultaneously a conservative return to the way it should be. We'll go back through this radical change to a simpler time where we are all, you know, free and able to sort of, we're, we're all sort of together as kind of folksy sort of Americans able to think about big questions ourselves. 
So that's radical conservatism. And the final part of it is a uh, utopian appeal. So you picture at the end of this populist struggle, a kind of utopian world where let's say we vanquish you know, these institutions, we will finally be together and live as free and equal citizens, able to discuss what we want to, to have honest conversations about religious belief or about medical belief, uh, about education, about human rights, and the world will be much better as a result. Now we can never get to this intellectual utopia because the moment you get there, the cycle's gonna start again, right? There's gonna, there's gonna be new institutions and new figures for you to oppose, right? There will be a sense of division that emerges instantly. But the hope of the utopia is what's driving this kind of populist advocacy um, and this populist movement is the idea that we can get to this better place. I wonder if we could think a little bit about you know, one of the you just mentioned a tension there that that I think is really interesting, which is to say that if you if you begin from the the intellectual populist point of view assailing the establishment and claim that your medical knowledge you know is equal to whatever is coming out of the medical establishment that you're assailing, and you in fact succeed in toppling the medical establishment, your medical expertise then becomes the established medical expertise. One of the things about Ingersoll that I find interesting, and this might see, seem a little bit tangential, but I think is is central to part of your discussion, is that he was often mistaken as a believer, or he often received mess messages from people who said, well, I know that you don't really mean all of this, but what you're doing is serving the true religion, you know, that you're, in fact, a better Christian than those institutions that you assail and are bolstering our religious belief. Is there a degree to which the orators that you talk about are in fact advancing the cause of the institutions that they critique, or are they seeking an entirely new utopic arrangement? I think it depends at what level you're going to take their, their discourse. So at the surface level, there is a sense of sort of combat and uh, antagonism. And that antagonistic energy is really important to the populist tradition. But I think if, if you start to peel back the sort of surface layer of that discourse, I think, and this is one of the, the points I try to make in the conclusion of the book, there is actually a way in which these populist leaders, these populist speakers, even though they seem to be attacking the established knowledge institutions, they're actually serving those knowledge institutions in other ways. Why? Because they're getting people interested in conversations about religion and health and education. People who normally would be disaffected, right? Uh, I don't care about what they're saying, you know, in uh, higher education, in the academy about these issues, right? Well, populist leaders come along and say, actually, let's have these conversations, right? Not everyone is going to end up agreeing with Ingersoll. And this is something I point out in that chapter about Ingersoll. Many, many people came away from Ingersoll's lectures saying, I don't, I don't agree with you on that question, Ingersoll. The point was not whether they agree with him, right, or they actually launch this populist revolution. The point was that they think together, that they inquire together, that they have important conversations. And in that way, they are serving the, the, the intellectual fields that universities are based upon, right? Divinity schools are based upon these religious conversations. Ingersoll's doing that, right? He's doing that in cities and towns across the country with people who normally wouldn't be invested in these religious conversations. So I think if you look at it that way, there is a sense in which populist rhetoric and the intellectual populist tradition can actually serve to enliven and energize 
um, academic conversations in really, really important ways. We don't want to tear down all of modern medicine, but wouldn't it be cool if more people were interested in questions of medicine and science and medical authority and um, uh, testing and all of these different um, issues that we face when it comes to you know public culture writ large and narrow specialties, right? It would be great if we got more people invested in these conversations. Yeah, I want now to sort of broaden the the or get a little bit deeper into the specifics of the book because I, one of the things that's so important is the various diverse case studies that you look at, and we've talked a lot about. Robert Ingersoll, and it's going to be unfortunate that we can't, you know, go point by point through each of them. But I wonder if you could say something generally about how you pick the figures that you focus on uh, in the book and and which kinds of conversations they're really trying to drive there at the at the turn of the 19th century. Absolutely. I was really interested in finding people who represented different points of view, because if I want to claim, as I do in this book, that intellectual populism is a tradition that is the sort of flexible, adaptable use of language in intellectual affairs that can be applied to many different ways. I needed a very sort of diverse pool of people and causes and traditions that I, that I could apply this to. So as we said, right, uh, I look at Robert Ingersoll, uh, who was uh, really interested in religious conversations and sort of rattling existing religious institutions. The second chapter of the book deals with Mary Baker Eddy, who was the founder of the Christian Science Church. Um, one of the few upstart global American religions, right? It was born in the United States. It grew across the globe, is still active today. You can still go to Christian science churches today. And not only was she interested in reforming theology and religion, but she was mostly interested in reforming um, medical knowledge, right? And the question of who is capable of healing, who should be involved in conversations about healing, um, and how do we draw ordinary people into these different healing practices? So that's the second case study. The third case study um, deals with a philosopher named Thomas Davidson. Thomas Davidson was uh, born in Scotland. He was an immigrant to the United States, and he was one of the most brilliant people on the planet at the time, or at least that, you know, anecdotally, people said that about him. He knew many, many different languages. He was, he would go to Italy and he would have conversations with the Pope. Um, and he was primarily interested in philosophy and abstract academic analytic philosophy. If you know anything about philosophy in the modern academy, um, analytic philosophy was, was Thomas Davidson's wheelhouse. But what's so interesting about Davidson is where he wanted to have these conversations. One of the things Davidson did was he started a school for abstract analytic philosophy in the poorest, most crowded neighborhood on the planet at the time. That was the Lower East Side of New York. This is where German, um, uh, Eastern European, many Jewish immigrants came and were basically exploited in the garment trade um, and in many other kinds of manufacturing. And Davidson went there and said, let's get a school of philosophy going for people who, for whom English is a second language, for people who work 10, 12 hours a day in sweatshop conditions, let's get together and talk about Aristotle. And those people absolutely loved it. They had a, uh, just an absolute blast. And talk about sort of democratizing inquiry and knowledge. That's exactly what Davidson wanted to do on the Lower East Side of New York. The next chapter talks about Booker T. Washington um, and Booker T. Washington's efforts to establish new uh, methods of learning and education for poor African-American communities in the South, right? At a time where they are struggling for existence. They're struggling to sort of make uh, a place for themselves in, the, in this new um, post-slavery reality. 
And Washington is doing some really incredible things when it comes to thinking about work and labor and education and knowledge and inquiry. And the, the story I tell in there is about Booker T. Washington and the Tuskegee Institute and the kind of work Tuskegee did um, when it was created uh, right around the turn of the 20th century in these sort of small rural black communities across the South. And the final chapter um, deals with Zikala Say, who, whose other name is Gertrude Bonin. Um, that's actually her birth name. She adopted the name Zikala Say later on in life. She was uh, one of the sort of leading intellectual Native American figures at the time who was involved in what was known as sort of a pan-Indian movement. That was an, a movement to unite um, Native Americans from different tribes um, into common cause right around the turn of the 20th century so they could do things like advocate for better conditions on reservations so they could advocate for citizenship, which they did. And so they could build new senses of community after being absolutely destitute. And so she did a lot of different, really important things to bring people together in new kinds of communities, to get um, Native American stories written down and shared to sort of preserve these traditions and uh, to energize people for, for sort of advocating for Native American rights. Um, so those are, those are the different case studies. And you'll look at it. These are people working in very different areas, religion, medicine, philosophy, education, human rights. And there are people coming from very, very different perspectives, right? You have everyone from Robert Ingersoll, who was, you know, a, a rich orator to somebody like Zikala Say, who is, you know, this Native American activist. But I wanted to say all these people are engaged in something kind of similar, right? They, if you asked them, they wouldn't say they're, they're like each other in any way, right? But I want to take a step back and I want to say, actually, if you look at what they're doing and what they're saying in their writings, in their speeches, in their lectures, there's something similar going on here. And there's this pattern, those five different appeals that we talked about earlier, that we can apply to each of these different figures to understand the way that they're rallying people together around these really, really important issues. Ordinary people coming together to discuss everything from, uh, you know, Native American rights to philosophy. And that they're translating that into actual societal change, like building schools, making advances in Native American rights. Um, is it your contention that that sort of populism resides at the heart of societal change? I don't know. That's a hard question. I think, I mean, one of the things people have said about populism, and I think it's partially true and popular, partially not true, um, is that all populism fails in one way, shape, or form. That say, if you look at populism in terms of their stated goals, right? Um, if you were part of the People's Party of the 1890s, your goal was to destroy the system of finance that existed in uh, the East Coast at the time, right? They didn't do that, right? They failed at that. They failed, they failed pretty miserably at doing that, right? If you want to look at somebody like Zikala Say, right, who is advocating for Native American rights, did she secure the rights that she wanted for Native Americans in the early 20th century? No, she didn't, right? She got some advances, right? But in a lot of ways, they're, they're, you know, the problems of reservations these days are just as bad now as they were in her time, right? There's just as much exploitation in that. But I think if we look at it in terms of those stated goals, we'll see a, a record of failure. So what if we look at it a little differently? What if we look at it in terms of the way people came together? They didn't necessarily change the system that they wanted to, but they got together and they had conversations together, right? They got together and they had big important thoughts. They got to talk about philosophy. If you were with Thomas Davidson on the Lower East Side of New York, 
you couldn't go just talk about philosophy with anybody, right? But all of a sudden, they got to go and they got to have these great conversations with somebody. And it, in that sense, it really affected their lives. And they came out of it um, with an absolute adoration for Thomas Davidson, this, this sort of cantankerous Scottish philosopher who went and spent all this time on the Lower East Side in New York. They ab the, the people down there absolutely loved it, right? This was their respite from the horrors of the world. They did nothing to change the, the sort of exploitation that happened there on the Lower East Side when it came to sweatshops and the garment industry at the time. But it really mattered to them. It mattered to the way they saw themselves and the way they, they thought about life and they thought about reality. So in that sense, I think this kind of populist energy, if we can harness it correctly, and if we can push it in sort of productive, profitable, democratic directions, I think there is a lot of change that can come out of it. One of the big points I want to I, I make in the book, and, and I, I remain convinced of this, if we, this energy is out there, right? People are frustrated with life in every way, shape, or form, right? So one response that academics could have, I'm an academic, right? My job is at Vanderbilt University. I make my living publishing you know, um, books like this. I make my living teaching and um, participating in these academic conversations. One possible response to these populist frustrations that are out there in the world is to belittle them. And to basically say, that's all just sort of uninformed, anti-intellectual reactionary crap, right? These are people who are just pissed off um, and they're uneducated, they're ignorant, and um, let's sort of push them aside and belittle them. I think that's terrible because the moment we do that, somebody else is going to grab hold of that energy and say, okay, guess what? Let's do something else, right? Let's have a different kind of movement. Let's have a, a very reactionary kind of movement, right? Let's harness this energy in bad ways. I think what we as academics and people that are listening to this podcast, people like you and me who are associated with universities, we have to take it absolutely seriously when people say, I hate it when academics tell me what to do and what to think, right? I want to have, you know, my own purchase in these conversations. So let's take their frustrations and their energy seriously and try to work with them and, cha and, and channel that energy into productive ends, right? The worst thing we can do is dismiss popular and populist frustrations. The best thing we can do is say, let's have these conversations. Let's figure out how we can build bridges and make connections with people about religion or medicine or philosophy or education, because if we don't do it, somebody else is, and we're not going to like the results. That's a really good setup for what I think is probably going to be my last question. But I, I, one of the things that I was thinking of while you were talking is how easy it is to find contemporary analogs for the kind of disgruntled populism that you're talking about and how neatly they line up according to similar themes. So it's easy to think of like the anti-vaccination movement, um, which is, you know, a, a, an attempt to say that we can understand medicine and science as well as anyone. We should be empowered to make decisions about what happened to our body. We shouldn't have to be told by experts to you know, take this, that, or the other thing. And one of the crazy things about, like, if you look closely at the anti-vax movements, what you see is a lot of, um, you know, if you look past the sort of faux science and the, the brazen certainty, you see a lot of frustration with not understanding why they're being told to do what they're being told to do, or not understanding clearly what they're being told to do. So I think that speaks a lot to what you're saying about finding a way to harness and communicate with these groups of people who are disgruntled or who are unsatisfied. But I, 
as I say, it's easy to get into that. Like, what are the contemporary analogs for bad populists? I wonder, are there, uh, do you see intellectual populism happening today? Do you see people like doing this really well that we could take as models or that we could look to um, as part of the tradition of intellectual populism that you trace in the 19th century? I think so. I think there's a lot of work going on um, on in this way. Uh, and I think you can look at, um, at one level, there's something like TED Talks, right? right? Which are really successful examples of people congregating virtually around really important questions, right? I mean, recently, as we've go been going through this sort of pandemic COVID-related, uh, these issues, right? People have looked back to a TED Talk Bill Gates gave in 2015 um, as sort of a, a warning for everything that we're sort of going through right now. So here you have people gathering around uh, really important conversations in, in virtual spaces, and I think that's important. One of the points I try to make in the book, which is, it's a, it's a hard thing to accomplish, but I think it's really important, is we have to always remember uh, the importance of face-to-face -face conversations, right? Um, TED Talks are really great. I love TED Talks. I listen to TED Talks all the time, but I don't think they have the same kind of, they're not a replacement, right? They might be a supplement or a complement to gatherings in person, but we can never forget gatherings in person and the, the value of getting together with other people in the same space. Now, that's gonna be hard to do in this sort of post-COVID world. I don't know how this is all gonna work, but there's something so important about getting together with people and having these conversations. One of the most interesting phenomena that's, that's happened recently is a lot of podcasters are going on tour. And when they go on tour, they have conversations live in front of audiences. I can download what they're recording for free and just listen to it on my own. I listen to a ton of podcasts. I love podcasts. But all of a sudden, these podcasters are going to physical places to have conversations with actual people in real, in real world. And people will happily pay money to go be in the audiences for these podcasts, right? Why? There's something so valuable about being together with other people who share similar interests, right? All of these people are really interested in true crime or whatever, so they all buy tickets to go listen to a true, a live performance of a true, true crime podcast, even though they could download the episode later and have it for free, right? But there is having these ideas and thinking these thoughts together in community when we're we're in the same physical space is really, really important. And I don't want us to lose that. I don't want us to overlook the value and the importance of bodies together in the same place. That's one of the keys and that's one of the, the hearts of the populist tradition. That's the core of what populism is about, the energy of other bodies and other people who wanna have these conversations. We can do some of it virtually, I'm not saying that, right? But I, you know, I, I worry and I think about what is, what is uh, the pandemic and all of the problems we face with, with this virus right now, what is it gonna to do to these gatherings that are really, really important for being human? It is really important that we get together with other people who share our interests and uh, maybe people who don't share our interests, but we're together, right? We're, we're responding to the same things. We're laughing together, right? We're, we're sighing together, we're applauding together. That kind of energy is really, really important. And so I hope when we get out of this sort of pandemic nightmare, um, one of the things we can get back to eventually, safely, slowly, is um, these sort of communal uh, thinking together spaces where we get together in community, in person, in the same place, and think about really important issues in life. Yeah, I agree. It will be nice. I mean, there's so much on the question of populism, there's so much emboldening about seeing that, you know, others have the same questions that you do, that others are seeking answers, that it's an acceptable, you know, thing to be engaged in the search for answers. 
Um, I like to conclude these conversations with uh, um, thinking about where your work is headed. Is there anyone that you would have liked to have included in the book, but that you left out? Um, or where does, you know, how has the work in intellectual populism uh, developed in the recent research? Yeah, so um, there are plenty of people that I looked at for this book that I ended up leaving out. You know, people sort of tangentially related to uh, the figures that I look at in here, right? I'm showcasing people like Booker T. Washington um, and Zee Kalase. And there's others I could have looked at in that regard. Uh, there's a wonderful African-American writer around the turn of the 20th century named Charles Chestnut. And I was thinking for a while of doing um, a chapter on Charles Chestnut, because I think he has a lot of important things to say to this tradition. Uh, but for a number of different reasons, I ended up going with Booker T. Washington. Uh, there were other people sort of pulling me in different directions. There's also a, a philosopher out there named John Fisk, who was a sort of philosopher and public speaker who was also big into evolution and blending evolutionary research with religion and thinking about how these things can sort of coexist. And he too was able to get massive audiences together thinking about what does sort of Darwinian evolution and natural selection mean for religious belief and how did, and what does it mean for humanity? Um, and so he was somebody I was also going to write a chapter on pretty early on. But I think, I hope one of the things that this book does is it provides this sort of framework for thinking about a distinctive intellectual tradition that other people can pick up and apply to other thinkers and writers, right? Social, sociopolitical populism is a portable concept. We can identify it when it comes to the People's Party of the 1890s, or when it comes to Ross Perot in the 1990s, or when it comes to Donald Trump in 2016. Um, I hope this book provides a similar kind of framework for thinking about other academics or scholars or speakers or writers who are building these kinds of vibrant communities around questions of knowledge production. Um, I think if you look at somebody these days, I've been thinking a lot about, um, there's a theologian named Rob Bell, who actually is not, who grew up um, not too far from where I grew up in Michigan, um, and has a lot of these Michigan roots. But Rob Bell is a sort of outcast in sort of mainstream churches, but he's a very successful podcast. Um, he writes these incredibly well-received books, um, and he get, goes on these spe speaking tours where lots of people will go and listen to Rob Bell talk about this stuff. They're almost sort of performances like that. And I think Rob Bell is doing a lot of intellectual populist kind of work um, because he's dissatisfied with, you know, modern Christianity because he wants to have different kinds of conversations uh, with people. And he's using the tools that we have now. That's the podcast space. That's YouTube videos. There's a documentary about Rob Bell. There's books he publishes in, you know, in physical form, but also on Kindle. And he still goes out and he has these tours and he still gets people together in physical spaces. Um, so I think hopefully the kind of framework I develop in this book is something that I or other people could use to think through what other intellectual leaders, thought leaders are doing um, historically or even here in 2020. I think that makes a lot of sense. And, I, and I'll say that in my experience of reading the book, it is remarkable how portable it is, as you say, how clearly, you know, as you're talking about the different appeals or the different ways in which speakers have appealed to, you know, anti-authoritarianism or Americanism, all kinds of bells are going off in my head with examples from history, whether it's uh, L. Ron Hubbard or other kinds of thinking about, yes. you know, characters who have, who have made that sort of appeal. So I think that there's good evidence, at least in my experience of reading the book, that, that it is portable in the way that you say, and it, it's a super useful counter to the kind of condemnation of populism uh, that we talked about at the outset. And I think it's, 
Uh, I was just going to say, I think it's always important to remember that even when it comes to, uh, you know, areas of, of sort of populist frustration that we don't agree with, right? Anti-vaccination efforts, flat earth theory, which has all of a sudden made a return now, we shouldn't dismiss it, right? But we should recognize it as an opportunity. People are there because they want to have conversations about these issues, right? People are um, involved in a lot of these different traditions and these communities because there, there's a sort of hunger for intellectual thought and exchange and discourse. And we have that's that's the sort of positive, you know, glass half full side of the anti-vaccination issue, right? Those people are concerned about health and medicine and they're having conversations about it. If we can figure out how to get involved in those conversations and work with people, um, I think we're going to be much better off. I think with that, we've we have quickly used up the time for this conversation, which I have enjoyed so much uh, in addition to how much I enjoyed the book. Before we go, I just wanted to say thank you so much to Paul Staub for joining us today. Uh, as I say, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. It's just been my absolute delight to be here. And I want to thank you and Michigan State University Press for continuing um, to publish books, which are terribly important for us as scholars, but us for us as humans um, and people who want to uh, engage important ideas. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. Paul Stobb's book, Intellectual Populism, is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can find more about the book at intellectualpopulism.com, and Paul is on Twitter at Paul Stobb. You can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter, where you can also find me at Kurt Mill. The MSU Press podcast is a joint production of MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to Daniel Trago, Medija Gross, Dante Smith, Kyleen Cave, and the team at MSU Press for helping to produce this podcast. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Thank you all so much for listening and never give up on books.